Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Chris Geis, and this is episode 22, recorded on Thursday, August 1st, 2019. The title of this episode is Wes Fleming on buying his new Indian FTR 1200S. In this episode, I chat with Wes Fleming, who has been riding motorcycles for many years, has over 100,000 miles under his belt, and also does a lot to support the motorcycle community through his podcasts, website, YouTube channel, and the work he does for the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, also known as the BMW MOA. Wes recently purchased a 2019 Indian FTR 1200S for his 50th birthday, and that's what gave us the idea to get together for the first time and do an episode together. Although his new motorcycle is the focus of the episode, we spend a lot of time talking about the process of buying a new motorcycle and topics like why Wes chose this bike, doing your research before you visit the dealer to make a purchase, choosing the right bike for you, buying a bike in its first model year, getting a bike fitted to you, financing, negotiating price, buying insurance, extended warranties, upgrading or changing an exhaust system and how that relates to emissions laws and performance, establishing a good relationship with your dealer and mechanic, the importance of having and reading the owner's manual and service manual for your bike, engine break-in, why having a chain drive can be a good thing, owning more than one motorcycle, and the like. We don't have time to get into a lot of specific details on this motorcycle model as we had a ton of fun discussing all of these related topics. But if you'd like to hear about the details of the Indian FTR 1200S, let us know and we'll do another episode together with Wes having even more experience to talk about regarding this bike. So... You want to ride a motorcycle? Well, you've come to the right place. Because this is the So You Want to Ride a Motorcycle podcast. Thank you to everyone who has written in and contacted me. It's really rewarding to see the community that's starting to form and how different listeners are reaching out to help other listeners. Thank you all. I really appreciate it. If you haven't already, please drop me an email or fill out the contact form on my website or message me in Facebook or Instagram and let me know that you're out there and anything you want to let me know about the show. You can email me anytime at soyouwanttoride at yahoo.com or use the link in the podcast notes to my website where you find all my contact details. Also, if you'd like to help support the podcast, you can make a donation using PayPal by going to paypal.me slash Christopher Geis, or just click the donate link at the upper right side on my website. So this is a, a longer episode tonight, so I just wanted to briefly just hit on a couple of news, uh, news topics and items. Not going to go extensively, but uh, I will have some more detailed news tidbits and things for future episodes. So this past weekend, I joined Gina as she took her turn as a guardian for the Women Riders World Relay, U.S. Ripple Relay Baton. We started out with a really cool gathering at Harley-Davidson of Nassau County in Belmore, New York. Thank you again to Larry, Ellen, and their team for hosting an awesome meetup. The Lower Hudson Valley Stilettos on Steel rode down to Long Island from Westchester, New York, to hand the baton off to the Long Island women riders. We then all did a group ride down to the famous Jones Beach Water Tower, also known as the Pencil, for more photo opportunities before the baton set off for some more touring on Long Island and then a meetup with the next group up in Connecticut. While the Women Riders World Relay is, of course, a relay for women riders, Men can accompany women on the various legs of the relay. 
I think it's really cool that from the outset, the admins decided that they would permit, encourage, and support the inclusion of the men that support them and what they have set out to do on the Women Riders World Relay. Also, I want to thank Bond Body Armor for being a listener of my podcast. And also, I realized that I failed to mention another benefit of the Bond Armor system that I used when I mentioned it back in episode 20. That benefit is that because the Bond Armor is basically designed like an underlayer, it ensures that the armor fits well and snugly against the body. Other garments I have, riding jackets and etc., though they have some adjustment straps or Velcro pockets to help fit the armor and keep the body armor pieces in place, they do not work as effectively as what I have with my Bond Armor. So that is definitely an added benefit. So you've got you know both the, the, the shirt, the, the light jacket, and the pants, which I can wear, uh, knowing that the you know the armor is going to be held in place, and then I can wear whatever kind of outer layer I want of whatever thickness or weather protection, whether it's waterproof or not, or something light for the summer, or you know heavier for cooler weather, or even you know heated gear for wintertime. So I'm really beginning to think that's the way I'm going to go. Instead of worrying about replacing the armor and all my other garments, I'll just stick with my Bond body armor, which really does the job well. And then I've got all those other layers, and I can even have you know, jackets that don't have to fit too snug because I'm not worried about the, the armor moving around, you know, and, and not being in place in case of a crash or something like that. And it even allows for layering because in cooler or cold weather, you know, with the body armor on, I don't have to have a snug fitting jacket. And so, you know, I could carry a couple layers, a sweatshirt or a thermal layer or something and just be able to easily, you know, change garments depending on the varying conditions I'm riding in just to make sure I'm comfortable, you know, and, and always having my my armor snugly held in place. And with that said, let's get on to tonight's show. On the line with me, calling from, I believe, Virginia? Yes. Yes, okay, is Wes Fleming, who is the host and creator of a number of things that you'll uh, be able to check out if you're not already familiar with them, which we'll get into in a moment. So, hey, Wes, how's it going? It's going good, Chris, man. How are you tonight? I am good. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. So, yeah, so um, let's, we'll t- let's talk a little bit about some of the things. You're quite a busy dude. Aside from being a musician, right, which, which is really cool. I'm a, I'm a bit of a... Very hard time on that. I'm a, I'm a bit of a frustrated guitar player myself. Um, but, yeah, so you got a couple things going. So I, I believe your newest podcast is the 200 Miles Before Breakfast? Yes, that's correct. Okay. And then you have one other podcast, right? Yeah, the, the podcast, the first podcast I started doing is called Chasing the Horizon. And uh, I started that because um, there's a lot of really good motorcycle podcasts podcasts out there, but not a lot of them um, talk about kind of from a journalistic aspect, talk about the motorcycle industry um, in the kind of depth and direction that I was interested in hearing about. So after, you know, a year of not listening to that podcast, I decided to just start it. And um, because of my association with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, I have access to a lot of people in the industry. Yeah. So it enables me to, to talk to people that um, that might not otherwise, people might not otherwise think to have as a guest on a podcast. So sure. I've had just regular writers. Um, I've had journalists. I've had uh, the CEO of Royal Enfield USA was on the show. Awesome. Um, I talked to um, now three, or three or four small motorcycle manufacturers, um, people that are into marketing uh, and 
my newest episode that just came out the other day was uh, the guest was Wendy Crockett, who just won the Iron Butt Rally what? in right. 2019. Yeah, so, so I saw I saw the uh, I saw the post on Facebook. I don't know if you had posted whatever. I, there was a post on Facebook about that, which I shared around. That was really cool. Uh, I believe I had seen that you had done an episode. So yeah, I have to admit I have a bunch of catching up to do on your podcast. Um, well, it's I, 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 season, right? So we don't have all the time to <laughs> listen. I listen in in the winter and when I'm driving. Uh, yes, yeah, and that that's what I do. I, I like listen. You know. You know, on the motorcycle, sometimes more. Yeah, when I'm driving in the car, I've got a two hour commute back and forth to New York City. So if I'm not sleeping, I'm listening to podcasts or watching YouTube videos and stuff. But anyway, I, I do like I know Chasing the Horizon really like your really like that podcast. I have, like I said, quite a few episodes to catch up on. I haven't had a chance to listen to 200 Miles Before Breakfast yet, although it is in my podcast player. And I know there's a bunch of episodes waiting. So <laughs> just get there you go. And one of the big differences between the two shows is that 200 Miles Miles Before Breakfast is really every guest on the show on that show is a member of the BMW MOA. Okay, so that's really, cool. well. It's not it's not meant to exclude anybody else. Um, it's really intended as a as a tool for the MOA members to get to know the other members a little bit because you know we we live in a digital world and uh, even though you know we have a big rally every year and we have all these other events it can sometimes be difficult to connect, you know? So I like to talk to as many different kind of people as I can. And uh, I usually interact with members over the phone or over email. So this gives me an opportunity to talk to them and then kind of get those stories out. And that uh, is be, has become part of our, our content kind of folder that, uh, that goes along with the BMW owner's news, which is the um, magazine that we put out every month and right. uh, you know, our website and, all the other stuff that we do. And that's been a lot of fun because, you know, you kind of sometimes, I don't want to say forget why you're doing what you do, but sometimes you overlook the, the people that are involved when, especially me, when all it felt like a lot of times all, all I was doing was writing stories right. and I wasn't really kind of getting in depth in enough of them. And, uh, I really wanted to, so it started with an idea to do audio member profiles, which is, is a, a thing that we sometimes run in the magazine where we'll, you know, get some pictures and talk to one of the members and, you know, do a page or two in the magazine that's, that's about that member. Um, so it kind of developed from that idea. And since I was already doing Chasing the Horizon, it was really easy to kind of conceptualize and start up a second show. And a lot of a lot of members listen to it, but a lot of the people that listen to it are also not MOA members. Right. So, oh. you know, maybe they'll listen to it for a while and decide that the MOA is something that they want to belong to, even whether they own a BMW or not. Because, right. honestly, we don't care, you know, what motorcycles you ride. Yeah, that's cool. That's awesome. All how many about. how many members are there now in the, the Owners Association? The, I think there's 27 or 28,000. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It's, so a, it's a really big organization. Okay. And, and any, any idea how many of those people listen, listen to the podcast? Um, I know that the, right now, 200 miles before breakfast has about a thousand regular subscribers. Nice. So, um, I don't know how many of those people are members, but I get a lot of feedback from members. I get emails. Um, this past June, we had our big annual rally. Uh, this year we held it down in Tennessee 
And I couldn't walk from one end of the fairgrounds to the other without people stopping me and saying, Hey, I was, Hey, Wes, hey. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so that was really, that was a really great experience. And it was, it was a little weird cause that's never happened to me before. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I know, I know people are listening to it and that's what really means a lot to me. That's cool. Instant celebrity too, right? Nothing, nothing yeah. wrong with that. <laughs> that's awesome. I, I think it's, I think it's a really great idea just to help build a community. Cause like you said, just an opportunity you know, for members to get to know other members and in in a way that people might not ordinarily, you know, how many people, you know, get asked to be on a podcast, but you're part of a group like this. It's like, yeah. and I, cause I, I know people like it. Like, you know, I've reached out to my listeners. Hey, do you want to come on the show? They're like, really? Oh, that'd be awesome. You know, it's like yeah. take a chance to be on radio kind of. Well, and especially, you know, because in, in a lot of the writing circles, BMW owners have this stereotype of being doctors and lawyers and dentists and, and things like that. So, um, you know, I have yet to talk to a doctor, a lawyer or a dentist that has, has not been on the show yet. You know, I've talked right. to, um, you know, IT professionals and one of the people I had on the show, uh, one of the first couple of guests is now a uh, professional motorcycle instructor. Oh, wow. You know, it's all kinds of different people that are that are on the show. Um, and and yeah, I have yet to talk to a doctor, lawyer, or dentist. Um, although I do have a doctor episode in the can for chasing the horizon. Okay, cool. And okay. he is an MOA member and a, and a BMW rider, but, uh, okay. I haven't put that episode out yet. Okay. So you found one, at least one. <laughs> I did, I did find one, but I, but he was, I, I talked to him because he's an, he's a specialist in emergency medicine. Oh, uh, cool. And so I wanted to kind of explore what motorcycle riders need to know about, you know, emergency medicine as it relates to being a motorcycle rider. Sure, definitely. I'll put that episode out hopefully really soon. Nice. Does he uh, drink Starbucks? Then it's like perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he does ride a GS, so I have to assume (laughs) drink coffee from Starbucks. I might be the only GS rider in the world that doesn't go to Starbucks. (laughs) And it's funny. I don't ride a BMW, and I'm at Starbucks all the time. So just go figure, right? (laughs) There you go. Yeah, Um, drink coffee. So uh, there's no point. Right. I got you. Got you. Uh, now I had a really good question that just escaped my mind. So, oh, I know I'm not a question. It's more of a statement. Um, if just cause you mentioned wanting to talk to him because of like emergency medicine, I guess like first aid and stuff as related to motorcycling. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but one of the things I've talked about on past episodes is a group called the accident scene management. It's accident scene management course. And it's, it's actually a course that Gene and I had done about two years ago where basically they train you. It, it's, a little bit of first aid, you know, geared towards motorcyclists, but more importantly, what what tips and tricks, things you could do if you're involved in a motorcycle accident or come up come up on one, you know, like how to how to handle the scene. It's really 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 good course. So uh, it's actually a couple episodes ago I had on a guy Dan Dan the fireman who was an EMT in the fire department, and uh, he now does YouTube uh, full time because he got tired yeah. of seeing people wreck you know, getting to wrecks and having to deal with the injuries and stuff. So now his thing is accident prevention. But, you know, so I mentioned to him this thing. And so he's actually hooked up with them and he's going to be delivering that course in his area, I think, which is Arizona, something like that. So cool. maybe something, you know, something. I found out about uh, Dan Dan, the fireman, because he bought an FTR 1200. Yes, right. Which he we'll get to. a couple videos about it. Momentarily. And uh, that kind of drew me into his, uh, into his YouTube channel. So, um, I've interacted with him on Facebook and in one of the FTR groups. He's a, he seems like a good guy. Yeah, he's, he's a good dude. Those are really great videos where he, you know, he looks at a at a crash 
I actually refuse to use the word accident because those things are almost never accidents. You know? say, that's a good point. I like that. Yeah. And it's, it's a, it's a personal thing and I don't, I don't begrudge anybody using the word accident, but I don't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I like, like the way he breaks down the aspects of the crash and really gets in depth into where the mistakes were and where it wouldn't have mattered if you did something right or wrong because that part of it was out of your control. So he's really a astute observer in that respect. Yeah. 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 I like those cause he does them live, um, so that people can watch and ask questions, you know, as he's going. So yeah, that, that's, that's a really cool thing he's got going there and it's unique. He's got it, you know, he brings a unique aspect to it, you know, of all the different motorcycle content that's out there. So that's, that's really cool. Um, and then, so that brings me to, you have your own YouTube channel as well, right? Well, I, I know you do, but what is, is that Moto Chiba or is it a different name or? Well, sort of. I, and like the podcast, I got a couple different uh, video channels too. Okay. Um, Moto Chiba is kind of my personal thing. Um, okay. That's where I, I do my vlog entries, which kind of a, for people that don't know, it's like a video diary. Um, and that's, you know, that is personal. It's not connected to any of my um, professional uh, gigs. So uh, the language there can be a little salty sometimes and the attitudes and opinions are all my own. Um, So just throw that out there. But um, I started a a channel called Nick Uber Max for BMW tech videos, BMW motorcycle tech videos. Um, And then I have a channel called Motorcycle Test Kitchen, which is basically product reviews. Um, But I do a lot of different things. I like to, I love unboxing videos. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of where I got my start. Um, with, with doing that. And then I kind of just collated them into one channel. So what I really like to do is to do is to get something new, do an unboxing video, use it for, you know, three or four months or whatever, and then do a review video when I've had a chance to, to really get to use it a good bit. Um, that's probably the, the, one of the biggest criticisms I have of, of motorcycle product reviews in general is people get something and two weeks later they've done a review on it and, you know, so they haven't used it in the rain or the heat or, you know, they, they have, a, you have that kind of honeymoon period where you got something new and you really want to like it. So you use it and you like it right away and then you do your review. And after you use it for six months, you realize, well, you know, this thing kind of digs into my forehead or, you know, this pocket, the zipper broke the third time I used it, but I hardly ever used it. So I didn't notice for three months. Right. Um, so I really like to live with something before I do a really in-depth review of it. Yeah. Gotcha. No, that, that, that's really cool. That's why nobody's seen a review of the FTR 1200 from me yet, because I've only got 700 miles on it. Okay. Fair enough. (laughs) And, uh, how long have you, how long have have you had it now? A couple of weeks? weeks? (laughs) Not that I'm, not that I remember, but I picked it up on the 28th of May. (laughs) Okay. Gotcha. (laughs) (laughs) So I've had it for a little over two months, like three days over two months. Okay, cool. Uh, and yeah, so I, I got about 700 miles on it. I, I took it out for about a 90 minute ride the other morning before work, which was really fantastic. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, Very nice. Yeah. I'm, I'm not planning on doing any kind of review, even starting to think about doing a review on it till I got a thousand miles on it. Okay. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I know, uh, and I'll put a link in the show notes. One of the videos that you did, and I'm not sure which of your channels, I think it was the Nick Duba Max, Max um, the one you did, and I forget the name of the tool, but it's like the, the compact uh, puncture repair tool. Yeah. You know, it's got like kind of everything built in. 
Yeah. And that was, that was a little bit of an exception to my usual review, but I kind of did that as a, as a, here's the tool and this is what it does and this is how you use it. Um, kind of thing rather than an, an, than an outright review. Okay. Right. But it, it looked, it looked like a really good product. I mean, I have not acquired one yet, but yeah, I know you demonstrated at least twice, I think, right? Especially, yeah, twice. Yeah. Once as the demonstration in a controlled environment in the shop where I actually got to practice first. And then the second time, uh, the very first time I took my, my FTR out for a ride, I picked up something in the rear wheel and punctured it had 40 miles on the bike and I'm out there to go for a ride with Doug from Amen Moto. And, uh, I see this thing sticking out of the back tire. So I'm like, all right, well, I guess I'm plugging the tire. Yep. Gotcha. But, uh, yeah, so that looks like a cool, cool product. And that was, that was a really good video. So like I said, I'll put the link in the notes. So that kind of kitchen. Okay. Well, okay. Gotcha. Cool. All right. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll find the link. So I guess that brings us to the meat of tonight's discussion. And so, so kind of the way this came about as as the listeners will have figured out, so you've mentioned your Indian FTR 1200S a couple times, which is awesome. I don't blame you. If I had one, I'd be talking about it all the time. <laughs> and uh, so actually, I should have mentioned, so Wes and I originally know each other from, we're both listeners of the Cafe Racer podcast. And uh, right. we, hang, we hang out in the Slack channel there. And so that's how we've kind of gotten to know one another. And it's, it's a cool platform for just communicating back and forth, either groups or one-on-one discussions. And you know, Wes had approached me. He's like, hey, you know, I got this bike. and I think it'd be kind of cool to to review it, but I don't really want to do it as a monologue kind of thing, which I understand. You know, just get on the microphone and talk about your motorcycle. So we're like, hey, why, you know, why, why don't we do an interview? Because I've been doing a lot of interviews. I like doing interviews. So I was like, hey, what the heck? And then, you know, why not? We're both doing podcasts. So he'll take the audio and I'll take the audio and we'll, we'll get like two episodes out of it. So I think that'll... Yeah, and I also thought it, cool. it was a good opportunity to talk about the process of buying a new bike. You know, I'm... I, yeah. I'm I'm a middle-aged, I guess is what we would call it. I'm 50. And, uh, this is the first time I ever bought a brand new motorcycle. So, you know, it was, it was, a. I have the benefit of not being, you know, kind of 22 and having a little bit of financial experience and knowledge behind me. Right. Um, so I kind of, you know, had an idea how to go about it, but you know, I never really, other than buying a house, I never dealt with a bank before mm-hmm. on anything. I've always bought used cars, you know, right, so right. I thought gotcha. it was a, was a good opportunity to talk about what goes into buying a new bike, especially a first year model. Sure. Uh, which no, can think- be a little dicey. You never know. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's that's a great idea. And uh, in fact, I'll also put a link in the show notes, but uh, you, you mentioned uh Amen Moto and uh, and Doug you, you know, hang out with him and get a chance to ride with him. So you know you and Doug had done a really cool walk around video which is on the Amen Moto YouTube channel. So I'll post a link for that. So anyone interested in this bike or even if you're not interested in this bike, watch that video. You'll get interested in this bike. <laughs> and, it'll, and it'll just kind of give you some visual you know context for for what we're talking about tonight. But yeah, so I, I like your idea. You know. I, in part, I'm trying to help new riders, people getting started out, although I have a pretty broad audience. So I always try to make my episodes a little bit of everything, which is also, you know, because I wouldn't exactly consider that bike to be a beginner bike, although maybe theoretically it could be just given some of the, the features that it has. And we can talk about that. Um, yeah, but definitely, you know, people, whether they're new riders or returning riders or whatever, just that process of buying a new bike. And like you said, you know, it's a different experience. I've never bought a used bike like, you know, from a private party. Um, mm-hmm. well, both of my motorcycles I purchased new just because that's how it's worked out. Uh, so I know that end of it. 
but uh, but yeah, so maybe we could just kind of start with that. And I don't know, maybe if you want to talk a little bit about I, maybe just what what got you thinking about buying another bike or or a new bike. You know, was it specifically seeing this bike, or was it just time for something different? Sort of. It was it, it, about okay. So let me let me back all the way up sure. in. 2014, Polaris bought the rights to, or maybe it was a little earlier than that, Polaris bought the rights to the Indian name branding and all that kind of stuff. So we knew that we were going to see Indian motorcycles coming out, made in America, another brand of motorcycles made in America um, with a big manufacturing operation behind them. At the time, Polaris was producing Victory Motorcycles. So it was really interesting to see what they were going to be doing. In 2014, they started publishing photos of the new motor that they had developed, uh, air-cooled V-twin, which, frankly, to me, was a little bit disappointing. Um, you know, another air-cooled V-twin. So, mm-hmm. you know, you know automatically what those first bikes are going to look like. And uh, sure enough, the first bikes that Indian started putting photos out about were heavy cruisers, which right. is what everybody expected. But what excited me about the whole concept behind Indian was I was convinced from the beginning that victory was going to go away. That ended up being true. I'm not saying that I'm psychic or anything, but I figured why would they have two brands doing the same thing, competing with each other. Right. But victory from a, from a technology standpoint and certainly absolutely from a styling standpoint was very industry forward. You know, they were not trying to compete with Harley Davidson, which I really admired about them. They were really trying to compete with the Japanese and other companies that were making cruisers designed around high tech, modern technology, you know, and and really kind of avant garde. Look, some of those victory motorcycles look crazy, Mm -hmm. but they're it was crazy like a Fox, you know, they were getting attention that people were talking about them. So I was very excited to see, uh, uh, a new American or a returning American brand with a lot of history, a lot of baggage, you know, sure. it was very interesting to see what Polaris was going to do with, with Indian. And, uh, they came out with the heavy cruisers and I was like, all right, well, you know, we kind of expected that. And then they came out with the scout completely different engine, liquid cooled, aimed at very much aimed at shorter riders, newer riders, less affluent riders. You know, the, the scouts cost half the price of the big cruisers. I think at the time they came out, the scout was almost exactly the half of the price of Mm -hmm. a chieftain. Okay. Yeah. So after that kind of percolated for a little while, I rode a scout a few times um, at a demo day, you know, the, the Indian demo truck comes to the local yeah. dealer and I would go and ride the scout. And, uh, I, over time when it came to be about time that I wanted to get, uh, uh, started thinking about uh, buying a new motorcycle, I just decided that I really liked everything that Indian was doing. By this time they had shuttered victory. They were, um, you know, coming out with some model variants. They started changing the looks of some of the bikes a little bit. And, you know, people, the, the real purists on, you know, in Facebook land complain about it a little bit, but I see a, I see that victory influence in there. And, uh, of course, you know, when they, when they closed the victory brand, they didn't just fire all those people, right? They had, you know, dozens of motorcycle design 
and engineering experts. What are they going to do with those people? They're going to put them to work on Indians, you mm -hmm. know? So I knew that Indian was going to be coming out with something in the future. What it was going to be, no clue. So I got to this point where I decided, you know, kind of as, as my 50th birthday to my birthday present to myself, uh -huh. I was going to buy myself a new motorcycle. And I decided I was going to buy a Scout. Because that's what they had. I didn't just want another heavy cruiser. I've got a, an R1200 GS. That's my heavy cruiser, you know? Yeah. So um, right about the time I made that decision to buy the Scout, not two weeks later, we started hearing rumors that uh, Indian was going to be putting a, a flat track variant into production, a street bike based on their flat track race bike. They'd had that one... Um, concept bike that was built on a on a scout engine but when they made the announcement about this bike that later on would become the ftr 1200 they're saying you know what we're not going to use the scout motor we're going to develop a new motor for it it'll be liquid cooled and it's going to be a different different engine and the very first picture of one of those ftrs i saw kind of got my blood racing and i said to myself self i think that's your bike mm -hmm. you know um, because I'm really not a cruiser guy. I wanted to get a scout because I like the ideas that Indian is putting into production. And I like the idea of a kind of an underdog company in the United States building motorcycles. But I wasn't sure how much I was going to love having a cruiser. I even bought a BMW cruiser that I got for super cheap. To ride, I told myself I'll ride it for six months and see if I like cruisers at all. And uh, I decided I liked it enough to own one that didn't have a, a fork-mounted fairing because the the cruiser that I got had a fork-mounted fairing, and I knew that wasn't my jam. But mm -hmm. uh, Scout is a little bit more bare, even if you put a windshield on it. Right. Um, it's not going to be all that heavy up front. But then they came out with the FTR, and, and that really just kind of that clicked and it captured my imagination and I captured my excitement. And the day that they officially announced that they were putting it into production, I called my friend Todd who worked at a dealership at work at the time. He still works at a dealership. He used to work at a different dealership. And I said, Todd, I just sent you a check for $500. That's my deposit on the FTR 1200. And he said, Whoa, hang on a second. We don't know anything about it. We don't know when they're coming out. We don't know what they're going to cost. I said, I don't care. I'm going to buy one. Right. So take my check, put it on a magnet on the refrigerator and say, Wes gets the first FTR 1200. I don't care what you do. I don't care how long it takes. It could, if it's two years or less, I'm in. So it ended up being about a year. So not too long of a wait, but long enough to really, <laughs> really build the excitement. Mm -hmm. Um, that gave me plenty of time to research because, you know, that's one of those things when you, when you order a bike that's not in production, all you've really done is claim a spot on the list with the right. dealer, you know? And if, if because new, new models like that generate that kind of excitement, I knew if I decided to change my mind and back out and get something else, they would not have a problem trying to sell that bike. You know, right. they wouldn't right. even have, maybe probably haven't wouldn't have to try to sell it. So it was kind of low risk for me. It was definitely low risk for them. And I had plenty of time to second guess myself. Um, 
obviously I didn't second guess it. And I just kept everything I read got me a little bit more excited. I think I probably, I don't know, I definitely knew more about the bike than the salesman who mm-hmm. sure. worked the deal. Um, now Todd left that dealership and another, um, salesperson inherited my deal. Right. And, um, so I didn't end up getting to buy it from, from Todd, you know, so he didn't get the commission. Somebody else did, but he did, he did the, it, n- nobody at that dealership had to work to sell me that bike. Right. You know, I called them basically and said, this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> when you, when you find out what the colors are, call me and I'll pick right. my color. Right. Here's some money. <laughs> Just find out what you can, you know? Yeah. So then I had, then I had all this time to kind of figure out how I was going to do it. Um, and you know, one of the things that, that I see a lot, um, in discussions about music gear, cause a lot of people, you, you play guitar a little bit, so mm-hmm. you kind of know that, you know, there are guitars out there that are, that are cheap. Um, there are guitars that are inexpensive and there are guitars that are cheap, right? but there are also guitars that cost a ton of money. And, um, so I used to be kind of wrapped up in the world of Paul Reed Smith guitars, which are at the time that I was involved, they didn't really have a low end model. They just kind of, they were all pretty expensive four figures and up. And, uh, I kind of circled around in that world, not as a major player or anything like that, but I really liked the guitars and, and, uh, was lucky enough to own a few over the years, um, bought and sold a few. And one of the things that, that I saw in discussions about those, and I see it with motorcycles too, is, well, if my wife lets me, I'm going to buy this. Right. I have to check with my wife and my, and I'm not saying it's, it's one or the other, and it's just a topic of conversation and people's relationships are what they are. But I never checked with my wife about buying a guitar because we talked about our finances all the time. So I knew if there was enough money in the savings account to be able to afford a a guitar or later a motorcycle. Um, So it was one of those things where it's just an ongoing discussion. Right. So when I, when I brought the FTR up to my wife there, it wasn't like I had to get permission to buy a motorcycle or or sell her on the idea. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. She wanted to know, you know, where, where was I going to, where was I going to get it? She wanted to know about it. You know, what's special about this motorcycle? Why do you want one? But she wanted to know where are you going to keep it? Because we don't have a garage. I keep Mm -hmm. my bikes in shed and the shed is big enough to hold a lawnmower and a ladder and about two motorcycles. Well, I already had two motorcycles in there. So, um, she said, you know, she wanted to know, are you going to try and cram a third motorcycle in there? Are you going to sell one? How's this all going to work? So that's when I had to kind of decide, well, what am I going to do? You know, so I decided I was going to sell one of my motorcycles and I decided I was going to sell my KTM 990 Adventure, which is a, a really cool bike. It's a lot of fun, but I never really bonded with it. It wasn't, it was much more off-road oriented than I was really interested in. Um, and I got that bike through a deal with a friend who had some health issues related to his hips and he couldn't ride it anymore. And it just broke my heart to see a motorcycle sitting rusting away, you know? So I wanted to have a project, have something to work on. And I got the bike back into riding shape and then sold it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but that's kind of the way things go because 
you have to make that decision when, especially when you're talking about bringing an additional motorcycle into your household is, are you going to add one or are you going to replace one? Right. So because of my storage situation, I don't want to just leave a motorcycle 24 seven sitting out in the driveway, um, year round or have to pay for storage over the winter, which I already have to do for my sidecar rig because it's huge and it won't fit in a, in a shed. Um, so that, that idea of kind of one in one out simply because of my storage situation, um, also made me think about a lot of other things, you know, keeping multiple gas tanks full and multiple bikes maintained yeah. and changes and this and that takes a lot of effort and the money can build up, but insurance as well, you know, now in, I didn't want to, I had to decide, do I want four bikes on my insurance or three? Right. right. So, and that also led to reevaluating my situation with my insurance company. And I switched insurance. I switched my motorcycles away from State Farm and over to Progressive because um, they gave me, frankly, they gave me a better deal on having multiple motorcycles. Um, so, you know, my insurance rates changed. I had to learn the processes for a whole new insurance company, uh, which I did before I got the new bike. I did that while I still had the KTM. So that was a, I tried not to do everything all at the same time to stagger out the learning processes, the new chunks of things that I had to learn. Right. Um, and I also had to decide, you know, how I was going to finance the bike, you know, between the time they announced the pricing, the very first time on the FTRs, the two different levels they were going to have. And the time it actually came out, the price went up, mm, I guess it went up, it went up at least a thousand dollars. It may have gone up to, um, I'd have to go back and look at all my notes that I kept along the way, but the, the price went up a little bit, which, uh, you know, not a huge surprise. They no, no. added some things to the, to, I got the model with the more technology on it right? and they, they added some things to it and I wanted the. I wanted, they call it the race replica, which is yes. the one that looks like the bikes they put on the track. Gotcha. That's the one I would then, get. Yeah. So it has a special paint job and it has Akrapovich, um, mufflers on it, which is high end kit, you know, a couple other things. So I'm not, not really surprised. The price went up about how much those mufflers would cost, you know, mm -hmm. so reasonable, but then I had to, to figure out, you know, financing. Am I going to finance through the dealer Am I going to finance through my bank? Um, how much am I going to finance? You know, you start thinking about looking at your budget, which was the, the big thing for me, looking at my monthly budget, the money coming in, the money going out and deciding how much of a motorcycle payment can I afford and still be able to responsibly meet my family obligations, like my mortgage and my electric bill and, you know, sure. the trash has got to get picked up. So, you know, yeah, I could, I could cut 20 bucks a month out of my, budget by taking the garbage to the dump myself. But then, you know, there's 35 minutes or 45 minutes every week that I have to spend going to the dump and you can't forget because then the trash builds up yep. and yep. You, know, you got little bags of cat poop in your trash and other animals know that and they come right. looking for it. So, and, and you nothing know, you and nothing you want to carry on your motorcycle. So you at least get a ride in. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So then, yeah. but then, you know, yeah, you got to have a vehicle you're willing to put trash in. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to keep giving the trash company their 20 bucks a month. Right. You know, 
And, and, but you start to make all those evaluations when you're, when you're looking at something like that. So I came to the, I got to the point where I, I figured I could make a payment of about 200 bucks a month. So then that determined how much I was able to finance, which made the decision on how much cash I had to take to the dealer very easy, you know? So, and with a, with a, with a brand new model, there wasn't going to be any negotiation on the price. That's because one of the they, things I was going to ask, and I kind of figured, yeah, like when, when you're on the list, it's like, you know, and you're fortunate you got it at list price, right? Re, like, re, yeah, li, they, list out the door. Because sometimes when the new vehicle comes out, it's the car, you know, it's the, the special edition Mustang or whatever, or it's the, what's the, uh, what's, who's the tuner? I forget the guy in Texas. Anyway, you know, it's like you're paying above, above sticker. Yeah, the Cobra, but I forget the, the guy's name, the Texan, whatever. Oh. The, Shelby, thank you, Shelby Culver, right? Um, yeah, you you sometimes are paying above sticker, so at least you were lucky that way. Yeah, and you know, having seen a ten or fifteen percent premium on the price of an of a new hot bike is not terribly unusual. Um, so I was fortunate in that I had a previous relationship with this dealership. I used to live in Northern Virginia, which is what they call the, the Virginia suburbs of DC. And this dealership is, it's called motorcycles of Dulles and they sell BMWs obviously, cause that's my world. Um, they started as a triumph dealer. So BMW was actually their second line and they picked up Royal Enfield and zero. And then in sometime in the last couple of years, they started talking to Indian and then they picked up Indian as well. I think that's all the brands they carry. Um, so I had a previous relationship with them through the BMW world. So when I decided I was going to get a new bike, I wanted to take that business to them. Uh, cause you know, frankly, I'm probably never going to buy a new BMW. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I just wait until one of my friends decides to sell theirs and I buy that bike, you know? Sure. Um, but with the, with the Indian, with it being a, a first-year model, um, I wanted to give my business to somebody I knew. There's a dealership 75 miles closer to me, practically, than Motorcycles of Dulles. But I don't know those folks. Um, so I took, my, I took my purchase business to Motorcycles of Dulles. But after I had the bike, then I went to the other dealership, which is Indian of Fredericksburg. And they're 50 miles up the road. And... Because if I'm going to get the bike worked on, if I'm going to have things done to it that I'm not capable of doing, I want to have a good relationship with my nearest dealer. Sure. So I, I went in there, introduced myself. You know, we talked about motorcycles. They were really excited. They hadn't received any of their FTRs yet. So they were really excited to see it, which was, which was neat. You know, I had the, the service guy and uh, two of the service guys and the owner of the shop came out in the parking lot to look at my bike. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was, that was a lot of fun to, to see somebody else that was ex- as excited about it as I was. Um, but that, that dealer relationship, I think a lot of people overlook because, you know, you, you kind of think, well, if I have a relationship with these people, they're going to give me a discount. And I knew I wasn't going to get a discount on the bike. It never even came up. There was no negotiation. Had they said to me, we want to charge you 10% premium on this bike. I probably would have taken my business elsewhere, even though I know them and I like the people that work there. 
Sure. Um, I would have found some place that would sell it to me at list price, even if it meant I had to wait for another six months. Mm-hmm. Uh, but fortunately, that's not an issue. They were selling them at list price, which I think is perfectly fair. And uh, I paid list price. Uh, and then on to that, you got to think you got to pay in Virginia, at least. I'm sure other states are similar, but there's a sales tax. Sure. Uh, there's a documents fee in Virginia that dealerships charge. And this dealership, Motorcycles of Dulles, puts a sign right on the wall that says our processing and documents fee is X. I don't remember exactly what it was, like $395 or whatever it was. I don't remember. But it's it's on the wall. It's on the invoice. You know, it's not something that uh, that they really make available for negotiation. They have to pay somebody to do that documentation because they effectively, I know I didn't know this before that, but they effectively function as a branch of the DMV. Yep. New York is the same. Yeah. So I, I walked out of there with a real motorcycle plate and a registration that looked just like if I'd gone into a DMV and I didn't have to go to DMV, which is magic, which is worth $300 right there. <laughs> it really is because you know, that that's two or three hours out of your life that you can't get back. Yep. Um, but they got to pay somebody to do that. And that person has to be trained. They have to stay up on the processes. They have to have um, computer systems that connect securely to the state's computer systems and all that stuff. So that's your documents fee, uh, sales taxes. So all that extra stuff um, ends up being, ended up being for me, it was about a thousand dollars. Sales tax is sales tax. You're not getting out of that. You know? Nope. nope. <laughs> and, uh, Luckily, the sales tax on vehicles isn't as high as the sales tax on, you know, like um, shoes or whatever. So it's it's a special vehicle sales tax. I think in Virginia, it's 3.2% or something like that. It's in that 3 to 4% range. Mm-hmm. Um, so I walked in there with two checks. Um, I decided that I wasn't going to finance through the dealership. Um, I belong to a, a credit union, which is. Um, I always tell people check out credit unions cause they're, they're really kind of hungry for business. They're, yep. they're not like, they're a little more like regular banks than they used to be, but they're definitely kind of hungry for business and they do have really competitive interest rates, especially if you have a decent credit rating, which I, of course I checked my credit, you know, Price, ran my yep, own yep. credit before I started all this, this process of trying to secure financing. So I knew what my credit score was. Um, and I'm in the low 700s, which is not horrible, but it's not great either. No, that's uh, it's, it's a pretty average uh, credit rating. So I, I knew, my, knew what my credit standing was. Um, so that gave me the point to, to talk to them. And that's really where the negotiation for me came in. It wasn't with the dealership on the price of the bike. It was with my credit union on my interest rate. Right. Which, which actually is a really interesting point for, for people to think about, because especially on a long-term loan, like, you know, with a vehicle motorcycle loan, four five, six, seven years, it's not so bad. But like when people buy a house, like, like Gene and I just did a a home equity loan on the house. When you look at what the interest costs you, like on a 30 year loan, it's, it's like, in our case, it's like one and a half times the amount we're borrowing. You know, wow. so, so, so yeah, I mean, that, that's a good point. Like that there's an area to negotiate and save some money there. And it's a thing you can shop around too. And like you said, I think, you know, credit unions are hungry for business and I haven't dealt with credit unions a lot, but my general experience is 
the customer service is better. It, it feels more community. It feels more local. Like it's just the care factor is there more than when you're dealing with the big international bank on the phone or, you know, that kind of thing. Right. So, yeah. Well, and, and my particular credit union um, has a lot of military customers. I grew up in a military family. Mm-hmm. So I feel like, um, you know, keeping my business with them actually helps their mission to, you know, help soldiers and sailors and airmen and Marines all around the world take sure. care of their financial business. So yeah. um, I never joined the military. So this is one tiny little way that I can help support yeah. um, our men and women in uniform around the world is by, you know, helping support the credit union that, that takes care of them. So, sure. yeah, uh, so I was able to kind of balance out the, the term and I did go with a five year loan, even though I have no plan to actually let the loan go on that long. Oh, gotcha. Uh, so I also made sure that I got a loan that had no penalty for early payoffs. Yep. Sometimes some loans will, will have that, that clause in there where if you pay it off early, cause they're, they're banking on that interest money. Right. Exactly. You know? So if you, if you take that interest money away from you, sometimes they can, um, they can hit you with some fees. So I made sure that I got a loan that didn't have any fees for early payoffs. Um, and like I said, I, I wanted to get a, a loan that was a payment of about $200 a month because not only is that manageable for me in my everyday budget, but it enables me, it's low enough that if I want to make an extra payment in a month, sometimes I can, right. you know, based, based on my own personal income. Um, so I also, you know, picked up a, another part-time job to help cover the cost of the motorcycle. So that was something that, that not everybody is probably going to be able to do. Um, but I had the opportunity to, um, teach some college classes, which is something that I've done, uh, since 2000, I've taught college. Um, so I picked up a college class. I teach an online class that, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't pay me quite enough to make all of my payments, but it pays me enough so that my payment doesn't actually hurt my bottom line. Right. That's awesome. And then, uh, you know, during the school year, I can probably make an, at least one extra payment a month as long as I manage my other expenses, you know? So I sat down with my daughter and my wife and we talked about, you know, not going out to dinner all that, you know, two or three times a month and just going out once a month instead. Right. Um, we cut one of our, um, subscriptions, one of our on streaming service subscriptions. So those kinds of little things where you're, it may feel like you're not saving money, but, in the long run, you really are, you know, even if it's 15 or $20 a month, you're still saving 15 or $20 a month. And by the end of the year, that's another motorcycle payment. Right. Yeah. So one of that, and that's kind of where to circle back a little bit to that whole, you know, I got to talk, I got to get my wife's permission to buy this guitar or this motorcycle. Um, and I, and I'm not busting on the people that, that say things like, well, maybe I'm busting on a little bit, a little bit. Um, that's just not how, my particular relationship works. Um, because when we first got married, we had nothing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we had to stay on top of our finances. And that was a, that was a new thing for me at that time. So, um, it really helped me become a lot more responsible. And it's kind of humbling to think that 25 years ago, if I hadn't started paying attention to my finances, then I probably wouldn't have been able to buy this motorcycle now. Right. And, sure. you know, so there were some hard years in there, 
and some tough decisions. And especially when we were first married, we went without a lot of stuff that would have made life a little bit easier. Um, but now, you know, I can, I can afford to buy something that I don't really need. I didn't need another motorcycle. No. Um, but it's fun and it's exciting and it puts a giant smile on my face. Uh, even just thinking about it, you know, which is priceless. Yeah, it really is. And, uh, you know, it's kind of, it, it was a little scary to, to make that commitment to buy a first year model because yeah. that's the, that's the year that they, everybody, the big, they capital T, they, they yeah. always tell you don't buy the first year, you know? And, uh, and sure, certainly there are some people that are having trouble with their FTRs. Uh, one of the big problems that I keep seeing is stalling. Um, you know, like almost every other new motorcycle that is built to not necessarily built to a price point, but built to an emissions standard. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're fueled very lean. Right. So, you know, that can cause some, some stalling and surging and stuff like that. And, and I'm sure that Indians got a little bit of work to do on the fuel maps that go along with the ride modes that are built into it. Um, but it also created a niche for aftermarket companies to come in and build new fuel maps for that right. maybe Indian can't do because they have to stick to these emission standards. Um, so it creates an opportunity for other people to kind of step in, use their technology and their expertise to earn some money um, and, and kind of go from there. So it's been really interesting to, to see a lot of those things. Um, other than that, I haven't seen a lot of major problems, but then again, you know, I don't know of anybody that has put more than, you know, three or 4,000 miles on one of these things. So, um, I think it'll be maybe a couple months before we, we see any patterns really shake out Mm -hmm. and not with a new, with a new bike. Um, you know, the fuel mapping is, is, almost always going to be something people talk about just because of those emission standards, creating, creating that situation where you really have to build the bike to that standard. Right. Um, sure. Sure. And, it, and it, so in fact, maybe that's something we could talk about a little bit. Cause one of the things I was thinking as we we're talking about your bike, right? Like I said, I have listeners who are newer people, you know, new, newer to motorcycles and riding and, and maybe even experienced riders who don't know that much about how motorcycles work and whatever. So, Maybe we can kind of talk about some of these things. So, so the fuel map or the fuel mapping, right? Let me give you my kind of naive idea of it, and then you can kind of fill in what I'm missing on, right? So, I mean, basically, right, that has to do with, I guess, essentially the programming, right, inside the electronic control unit for the motor that determines, you know, how much fuel should come when, right, based on things like RPM, possibly road speed, um, I don't know, maybe even things like temperature and et cetera, right? Absolutely. You got it perfect. Okay. And and so it's my understanding it's a common thing. Like people will talk about flashing like the ECU electronic control unit or or changing the map or remapping so that, like you said, you're getting more fuel in the mixture, which then gives you better performance. Likely it's going to possibly, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, violate the parameters to which it was set up, right? Because that, that's one of the things that we talk about a lot, you know, on the podcast or whatever, is the tightening emission standards, right? So particularly in right. Europe, like I think Europe is implementing Euro 5 now, right? The, I guess, fifth edition of that emission standard. If I'm not 
mistaken, Euro 6 is already being talked about, right? And then in the U.S., we have all kinds of, you know, emission standard, standards and regulations. And so the thing is that manufacturers, and it's, it's tricky for, for, for manufacturers that make motorcycles that want to sell them into markets that are more restrictive, right? So I, I'm guessing probably the Euro, like Euro 5 standard is probably stricter than what we have here in the yeah, U.S., yeah. And so for Indian or Harley to sell a motorcycle into another market, yes, maybe they can slightly modify the bike so that it meets the Euro 5 standards. And so people here have a motorcycle that performs a little better out of the box. But anyway, my, my point is, so it, it's a common thing. It's kind of a weird thing because it's like, you know, technically, and in fact, even right in California now, because California has CARB, right? California Air Resource Board regulations, which are stricter than the other 49 states right and that's why some like you'll see some vehicles either cannot be sold in california or there'll be like a california option like when you buy a car like it adds a little whatever a couple hundred dollars or something like that so anyway so the thing is you know it is actually at least in california and i'm guessing most states it is actually illegal to mess with the emissions to do anything to change the motorcycle right that's going to increase the emissions because the whole thing is to control pollution and it's part of why harley davidson got into trouble right a number of years ago they were hit with some pretty stiff penalties because they were selling performance mods for street bikes that i guess was being promoted as for track use but i mean there's absolutely people that race harleys on the track but it's not that common (laughs) and so basically Exactly right, and so basically, the the thing was, the government came to Harley and said, "Look, you guys are just doing this to cheat the system, kind of thing." So they got a you know a, a big slap on the hand and some rest. So whatever they they paid fines and they have to do restitution projects and things. And it's actually interesting, not to get off topic, but recently, I heard someone talking about the fact that maybe part of what, and it's not like the reason for the Harley Livewire, the electric motorcycle, but part of what they're doing and trying to be more green may in part be to make up for, you know, it's kind of restitution for having, you know, that kind of scandal or upset in the past, you know. And so now a lot of, I don't know if it's all, but the Harley dealers are putting like charging stations at, yep. you know, at, at their locations that are not only to charge the live wire, but I understand it's compatible with like Tesla vehicles and stuff. So and like I said, not, not to get off the subject, but it's just kind of an interesting thing, you know, just along those lines well, of fuel, fuel mapping. And that was my whole point, right, is it's like. Yeah, yeah. You you want you want the bike to run better, run faster, perform, you know. But what that kind of means is you're possibly violating, you know. The, yeah, and and I actually one of the things that a lot of the uh, FTR owners are talking about is uh, eliminating the catalytic converter. Uh, yep. And I just just wrote a bit an article for the owners news BMW owners news on catalytic converters and what they do and how they work and why I feel like they're important. Um, I am not going to remove the catalytic converter from my motorcycle. Um, but now that's a personal decision. But before I kind of went on a rant about that a little bit, I did look up the Virginia laws that relate to catalytic converters. And in Virginia, um, it is illegal to remove or modify a factory installed catalytic converter. But that law is in the section of the legal code that deals with passenger vehicles. So it doesn't specifically say that you, it doesn't specifically say motorcycles. Got you. Um, But we also have an annual safety inspection. And to pass safety inspection, 
you have to have a complete exhaust system. And that applies to motorcycles as well. So there's a, there's a little bit of wiggle room. There's a little bit of gray area when it comes to motorcycles and catalytic converters. But that's one of the things that kind of, that I kind of look sideways at because, you know, you got these guys that are offering these, uh, cat converter, cat eliminator kits. Yeah. Cat deletion. Yeah. Which is basically on the FTR 1200, it's just going to be a, a connector pipe to connect the headers to the mufflers, basically in the absence of the catalytic converter. And on the, I went and looked at one of the pages where they're selling them and I'm not going to mention the company cause I don't want to embarrass them or, yes. or think, I don't want them to think that I'm picking on them cause I'm not because they're selling to a market and the product they're producing looks fantastic. It's really well-made and uh, I think it's worth every penny that people are paying for it. Yeah. Um, but it says right on there for off-road use only. Mm-hmm. And every time I see that, and it was the same with the Harley situation, I feel like they're going for off-road use only, you know, Cody wink, fingers, wink, 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 wink. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> most people that buy street bikes, ride them on the street. Right. <laughs> so, um, yeah. and, and granted, so the FTR 1200 does have the flat track, uh, DNA, I guess you could say, yeah. and it does come with the fairly knobby tires and pretty much stock. You could ride it gravel roads and ride some like fire roads and stuff like that. You're not going to take it off road, off road. I don't think, although I'm sure it could be set up for that. Well, it's, you know, they put out some videos that showed some pretty hot off-road riding, you know, scrambler style, uh, hooligan kind of, you know, kicking up dirt and, and uh, roosting through through trails. And the tires that, that are on it are made by Dunlop. So they made a variation. Dunlop supplies all of the tires for the American Flat Track series, the singles and the, and the twins both. And they made a variation of their flat track racing tire for this bike and they just basically made it with more street friendly compounds so they last a little bit longer because mm-hmm. racers need their tires to last one race right but right. street riders need a need tires to last several thousand miles hopefully many thousands miles yes. yeah. um so it's really cool it's it's a it's an aggressive tread pattern i would call it in the world of um, kind of adventure riding tires, I would call it maybe a 70, 30 or an 80, 20, you know, 80% on road, 20% off road. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think other people might hedge that down a little bit, but if I, for, for my kind of expectations, um, you get below, you get down to 70. I want to see some real knobs and, and what these Dunlop tires have is just an aggressive, kind of more open tread with a block pattern. Right. Um, but it's very suitable for the street and they're good tires. Uh, they grip pretty well. I've had the opportunity to ride my bike in the rain and they work pretty good in the wet. Um, I, I, I per- specifically me personally, I don't care for them. Um, I feel like they, they got a little bit of wiggle on rough road conditions mm-hmm. and they're, they're kind of noisy. Um, from, from my taste. Sure. So I'm probably going to replace mine. Um, after I get to a thousand miles, uh, I do have to say I'm, I'm wearing them out a little quick. It's, uh, the bike has so much power that it's really hard to kind of control your right wrist because it feels so much fun. 
to yes. ride this. Bike. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Now, first so, year is just. Yeah. Now you've got seven seven hundred miles on it now. You said right. Yeah, right about. Okay, so what's the? I'm assuming there's a break-in period where they're like kind of take it easy. Is it like five hundred, a thousand? Yeah. So here, this may or may not surprise you. I'm going to show you. I'm just reaching right over here to my right on my desk, and I've got the mm -hmm. manual okay. right yeah. here. I refer to uh, and have read cover to cover. Yes. And so I followed the instructions. the The break-in period is 500 miles, and uh, they tell you, you know, don't use more than a quarter throttle for the first hundred miles. Don't use more than, you know, half throttle for the next 200 miles, that kind of thing. And then when you get to 500 miles, take it to your dealer and have it serviced, which is exactly what I did. Right. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm a fairly intermediate shade tree mechanic. <laughs> um, I, I, I do most of my own regular maintenance, um, I've even replaced a clutch or two um, and done a little bit of uh, harder work. But I am lucky to have access to and have worked at uh, a BM, an independent BMW shop. So I always had a real professional mechanic to backstop me and tell me when I was about to make a mistake um, and to kind of walk me through things. Um, so I'm probably not as intimidated by working on a motorcycle as some other people, but for the very first service, the break-in service, I feel like it's important to take it to a dealer because, you know, those are the mechanics with the training on that bike, on that model. And the, the break-in service is more than just an oil change. You know, a lot of people kind of get this idea in their head, well, the break-in service is just an oil change. They look at a lot more stuff than that. And they go over the bike from end to end. They make sure everything is adjusted properly and is properly tightened. Um, and that's the thing that a lot of people, when they, if they change their oil at the break-in service on their own, more power to them. Right. But they're not necessarily going to take the time to make sure all of the bolts are tight. Sure. Right. Sure. You know? Um, and there are people out there that, that will. So, and I, I no think that's, that. That's a good point, too, about selecting your dealer and having a relationship because I hear different stories. And for sure, a good dealer and a good mechanic is going to do. Like, you know, Indian says, on 500-mile service, here's what you do. Here's the checklist, and I'm sure they do it. You do hear stories about people shortcutting and whatever. So, like, yeah. you bring it in for the 500-mile break-in service, and they change the oil, and out the door you go. Like, if nothing's falling off the motorcycle, out the door you go. So, yep. uh, you do, you know, it is one of those buyer beware kind of things, unfortunately. Well, and, you know, when I got home, I, I took took the bike to Indiana Fredericksburg, um, and I had introduced gone there and introduced myself, and they knew who I was, and I called a couple of days ahead of time and made my appointment, and they were waiting for me as I rode up the mechanic um, opened the double door and ushered me right into the garage. It was fantastic. That's cool. um, he asked me, you know, he asked me a few questions about the bike, about the performance, about my um, impressions and everything that was going on performance wise with the bike. And then I left him to, to do his job. And uh, when I got home, I double checked everything. Mm. <laughs> you know, okay. I went yeah. to the bike myself. Quality control. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And they had done all of the things that they were supposed to do. They also gave me a checklist uh, on my invoice of all the things that they, they did, did, which I thought right. was really smart. Yeah. So, uh, but I already have I already have the supplies to do the next two oil changes um, sitting in my shed. 
So I'll be, be doing those and there'll probably end up being videos of them because I think it's interesting. And I think it's something people will, will uh, be interested to see, um, you know, what's involved in doing an oil change on one of these bikes. So um, I'm really looking forward to it, uh, getting in there with a, with a couple of wrenches and, and seeing what's what. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. In fact, uh, Indian probably does the same thing with something I'll mention for listeners is, you know, I found that Kawasaki, you know, got the two Kawasaki's has all of their owner manuals in PDF format, you know, on their website. So like I carry them on my phone, which is really kind of cool. Cause it's like, yeah. you know, wh- whatever I go for a ride or I'm away for a week and it's like, Oh, I think I'm coming up on a service. What does that entail? <laughs> you know, I could just pull it open or whatever, or something. You know, it's like, how do you set the date again? You know, that kind of thing. So yep. it's just nice. Yeah. How everything's electronic nowadays. Yeah, I have the owner's manual PDF on my phone. Um, what I don't have yet is a service manual. Indian yeah. makes uh, available their service manuals for purchase. Uh, and that's one of those things where, you know, I kind of refuse to download a PDF off of some dude's website. Yeah, um, yeah I agree. For that, because, you know, it's, it, it's not just because it's copyrighted. And, you know, I'm a writer and I respect copyright, but I'm also a musician and I respect copyright, copyright you know, yep. music and that kind of thing. Sure. Um, and that's just personal. But, uh, you know, they, they Indian put a lot of work into that. And, you know, it is what it is. And it costs money to print those out. And so I'm going to pay whatever it is um, it, it costs to get one. I understand that the service manual is about $90 for my bike. That sounds uh, typical. Yeah. And uh, if there was a if there was a Haynes or a climber manual available for it, I would get that instead. Uh, but the bike is too new, and and the folks over at at Climber haven't had a chance to to get one in and break it down yet. But I'm sure that they will sooner or later. Yeah. Uh, they're really good about that, with especially with popular models. But it takes a few years. Those those people at there at Climber and Haynes, you know, there's as far as I'm concerned, they're doing the work of the motorcycle gods because they're just they they produce such high quality work that anybody that wants to know about how their motorcycle works can buy one of these books and see how it comes apart and see the pictures of what the insides of something look like. And even if they never in their life are going to change a clutch, they can see how it's done, which gives them the ability to double check what their mechanics have done. And I think really important to, you, you need to trust your mechanic. You need to find a mechanic that you trust. But you also need to be familiar enough with your own motorcycle to be able to recognize when somebody's made a mistake or forgotten a step or left something out and it's obvious to you from from looking at it. Um, Because, frankly, you know, one of the things people forget about motorcycling is it is inherently dangerous. Mm -hmm. We're on two wheels. We're exposed to the elements and they're are a lot of little things that can go wrong on a motorcycle that will kill you. Right. Absolutely. Now, if your front brake caliper is not tightened all the way down and it comes off and dangles from the line and gets caught in your front your wheel, wheel. Yep. you are going down. Yep. If your chain comes apart because you didn't adjust it properly, that can cause all sorts of problems, injuries and destruction of your bike and yourself yep. and all yep. sorts of things. So especially when it comes to the things on my bike that make it stop and go, I am meticulous about yes. checking back on what somebody else has done. And that's probably the biggest reason why I do my own work is because then if something goes wrong, yeah, it's I'm on no you. Yeah. yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, yeah, no, good point. And uh, yeah, on the on the service manual, so I, I've got service manuals for both of my bikes, the Vulcan S and the Z900 RS, and I highly recommend it too. Um, the Vulcan S I bought from Kawasaki. The Z900 RS I did not because it was out of stock. Like all the whatever official Kawasaki outlets, it was out of stock. Right. So I found a place. It was an internet purchase. It wasn't a PDF. It was a hard copy that looked legit. Like from everything I could tell, it like looked legit. It was less expensive, right? And when I got the thing, I mean, it, it looks proper. It looks correct. But honestly, it looks like a photocopy or like someone took right. the Kawasaki manual and scanned it and printed it. And so like, I'm not in favor of that either. Like I write software for a living. So even aside from that, like, I do believe in copyright protection or whatever. Right? You know, people create something, they own it, and it's their right to decide what they want to do with it. They can give it away if they want it. They can sell it, you know, whatever, whatever they want to charge for it, right? That's their right. Um, but just a, a warning for people, if you think you're going to save a few bucks by buying one of these lesser expensive ones, like it's pretty good, but you look at it and some of the pictures are not as clear as they could be, you know, because it looks right. like it wasn't a great scan or like the, the contrast got lost. So it makes it a little, a little sketchy to use. But I've, I've only done simple work on my bikes. Eventually, I'd like to, you know, start getting into the shade tree mechanic kind of stuff. And, you know, like I haven't done an oil change yet, you know, doing that, adjusting the chain and all that kind of stuff. Just haven't gotten to it. And it's like usually when I need to have something done, it's like, oh, I'm going away this weekend with the bike and I don't have time and I don't have time to learn it and figure it out and find some cool YouTube videos like on your channel. <laughs> you know, So it's like, okay, let me just pay, you know, pay someone to do it. Um, but the, the couple things I have done, like even just putting – the little fairing I got for the Z900 RS just mounts on the front, right? That had to mount to two bolts on the sides of the front headlight. I couldn't for the life of me figure out how to get that assembly apart. And it's just because of how the thing is put together. It was not what I expected. It wasn't simple and straightforward. But sure enough, you got the service manual, flip it open. Oh, okay, because they did that. Now it makes sense. <laughs> you know, it's like, so it takes some of the mystery away. So even for that, I think it's really beneficial. Yeah. So, and, you know, another good reason to have a, a good relationship with your dealer is in the event that you need warranty work, something goes wrong with your new bike. And, uh, you know, it's, it's something that you think is a design issue or a, a construction issue. You need to, your dealer is going to be your advocate with the manufacturer on that. Yes. Uh, because it's, it's not the dealer that makes the decision to honor a warranty claim. It's the manufacturer. The dealer might do the work, but, mm -hmm it's the manufacturer that, that decides if it's a warranty issue. Right. So, um, you know, and that's another reason to, to have your, uh, 500 mile service done at the dealership. Not that now there's, there's a, and I, the name of the law escapes me, but there's a law in the U S that says that a manufacturer cannot void your warranty simply because, you right. didn't have the service done by a dealership. Right. But you have to, you have, there's a much higher level of documentation required. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to have some kind of proof that you did yeah. that service. Um, where I, you know, and everything's so computerized now. Um, you know, when I took it to the Indian dealership, they put my VIN in the computer, they put my name and my address, um, which of course Indian already had because, you know, I bought the bike new, sure. but say I had bought it used, you know, now they've updated their system. They know who the current owner yeah. is. Yeah. If there's a recall, they've got my address. They can send me a letter and say, Hey, take your bike to the dealer for this recall service. Definitely. Um, you know, so it's, that's another good reason to have a, a good 
um, relationship with your dealer. But that also made me think of the warranty. So that was another aspect of the purchasing process that I didn't know about because I never bought a new vehicle ever. <laughs> um, oh no, that's, that's not true. I did. We did buy a new car for my wife, but one of my friends worked at the dealership. And so he kind of eased us through the processes Process. and, yeah. you know, so we didn't have a typical sales experience like, uh, like most people would. Um, so when I was getting ready to finalize everything, um, one of the things that they brought up to me was to ask if I wanted to purchase an extended warranty. So the warranty on the bike, I think is two years from Indian and, uh, the extended warranty tax on another five years onto that. And I thought about it. Uh, I didn't think about it before I went. So I had to, I had to kind of make myself stop and back up a step because in the heat of that moment, we kind of tend to jump, you know, and, and right. not, not really consider the decision. And so knowing that, um, that I'm fairly handy with a toolkit and I know a, a little more about motorcycles than maybe the average person does. So I do have a little bit of an advantage um, over like a brand new rider in that respect. But the, the thing, the reason that I didn't get the extended warranty, which I thought was reasonably priced. I think it was 1500 bucks or something like that for that five years right. is, is pretty reasonable. I think, um, so the reason I didn't get it is because I know down the road, Indian is going to come out with other new models. And so maybe I'm going to want to trade my FTR in on, I'm really excited about, they're going to be coming out with an adventure bike. I know it. I feel it <laughs> in my bones. Right. And even though I don't ride off road, I love adventure bikes because, you know, up, upright seating, plenty of luggage and carrying capacity, et cetera, sure. et cetera. Right. So, Maybe when that happens, I'm going to want to trade my bike in on that. And if it happens before my standard warranty ends, then all I'm doing in buying an extended warranty is buying something that transfers to the new owner. I get no benefit from it because I've only owned the bike for the warranty process. Right. And near, nearly all of the manufacturers that offer these extended warranties, you can buy them all the way up until your regular warranty expires. Okay. So the, the main reason I think this is opinion, this is not fact, this is just my opinion of dealing with um, motorcycles in general and working in a shop environment where I saw a lot of motorcycles come in. The biggest reason to get that extended warranty, and I'm going to say especially for a new rider, is for electronic problems. As the technology increases on our motorcycles, the electronics get more and more complex yep. and we ride in the rain. We, you know, ride in the winter. We heat cycle our motorcycles and they're less well protected from the elements right. uh, than a car. You know, the wiring in a car is all under weather seals. You know, it's under the hood. It's in the trunk. It's under yeah. the car, you know, interior. Um, so I, I have decided now that if I'm going to keep the motorcycle past the end of the standard warranty, I will get the extended warranty, not because I'm concerned about the transmission braking or the, or the motor you know, yep. or the motor or anything like that, but because of the electronics and just figuring out what an electronic problem is could take 
three or four hours of shop time and at a hundred or 120 bucks an hour, That's you know, you could be looking at $500 in labor just to figure out what the problem is. Right. And then say, well, it's this piece of the wiring harness and we're going to have to replace the whole thing. And that's an eight hour job and it costs $1,200 for the wiring harness. Right. And, you know, right. or, or it's the electronic control unit and that's a thousand bucks or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the ECU on my R1200 GS is bad. Um, it still functions as long as you don't leave the bike in third, in fifth gear for more than 30 seconds. If you leave the bike in fifth gear for more than 30 seconds or so, the computer freaks out and you can't start the motor. It'll keep running until you stop it, but then you can't start it again. And you have to reset the computer with a special diagnostic tool. Um, But an ECU for that bike is 1200 bucks, you know? So I either have to wait until I can find a wrecked bike and buy it as a salvage for parts. Well, that's, that's actually all I can do because I'm not going to buy a $1,200 computer for a bike that already has 85,000 miles on it. Right, 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 right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's interesting too, just something for people to be aware of, like with the extended warranties is you you have to be careful that sometimes a dealer, and I'm not saying any particular dealer brand or whatever, but I've heard sometimes dealers will sell an extended warranty that's a third party. It's not the manufacturer warranty, which is not necessarily bad. It's just, it's not always clear. And so it's just, again, one of those buyer beware kind of things. Make, you know, make sure if you want a manufacturer extended warranty, ask, is that what that is? And just, you know, ask whatever to see it, you know, in, in, in writing that that's what it is, because I've heard of some problems with third party, you know, extended warranties that they're sometimes even less likely to honor claims and stuff like that. And, and maybe in part, cause it's, well, they have a reputation, but it's not the same. Like if, if you have Indian or like I have Kawasaki's extended warranty and I have a problem and I bring it back, it's like, that's their direct customer. And I think maybe there's a little more incentive to make sure the customer is happy, you know, kind of thing. Sure. Yeah, um, I don't know that Indian, I don't know that the extended warranty is factory. I do believe it's third party, but that brings up another interesting topic. Always do your research because yeah. they gave me three options on extended warranties, three different companies. Well, they're not all going to be equal. So between now and, and the end of my standard warranty, I need to find out what those companies are, do my research on those. And that right there, that's another reason to have a good relationship with your, with your dealer or a mechanic, because a lot of times a warranty claim can hinge on, how the problem is written up. So you need to have a mechanic that understands how warranty claims work. Right. You know, and language can affect your ability to, to have a successful warranty claim. Yes. Yeah. Someone who's playing, playing in your court and yeah, knows how to properly explain what the situation is. Right. And and to be your advocate once again. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the other thing I was going to mention too, uh, just regarding warranties. So I mean, I have extended warranties on both bikes, the Vulcan S, which I got. You know, it was like second year that the bike was out, and then the Z nine hundred RS, first year it was out. You know, and again, like you said, sometimes you hear these horror stories. You know, the first year of a model, blah blah blah. So I was like, okay, and again, that the prices didn't seem unreasonable, so I went for it. I will say, and this is an individual decision, this is something people have to decide, and this comes into the whole discussion of of insurance, you know, how much insurance do you get, right? Because any kind of insurance, you're basically betting that something's going to go wrong, right? So it's like, what's your outlook on life? Are you optimist? Are you pessimist? Can you self-insure? Whatever. But I will say, like, I've had, I've bought new vehicles, you know, I have a a Nissan truck, I had a 
Mustang GT. I bought extended warranties, never needed them. Um, you know, so far on these motorcycles, knock on wood, I haven't needed the warranties. So it, what, it's just something I would suggest people just think about, you know, weigh out what's the potential cost if you do need something done and you don't have an extended warranty versus the cost of the warranty. Could you bank that money? So it, it's just something to, to think with. You know, in, in your case, I could see why you didn't go for it. Like, that makes sense. Um, yeah. And especially it's nice that they have the option that you can, you know, you can extend it before the you know, manufacturer warranty expires. That probably, that may be the case with a lot of manufacturers, but I don't, I don't know if it's all of them. Yeah, I don't either. I don't, don't know enough, but that's one of those things that, that you should really research before you walk into the dealership. And that's one of the beautiful things about the internet now is, you know, not only can you look at a, at a bunch of different places and find out what your bike is going for, they know you're doing that, which, which is good for you because then there's less opportunity for them to kind of artificially escalate the price without your awareness. You know, right. if everybody is selling a bike for a 10% premium over MSRP, then everybody's doing it. Uh, but if it's just, you know, the dealers in Ohio that are doing it and that's no slag on Ohio, I'm sure there are nice people there. Um, sorry. <laughs> I I pick on Ohio. I have fans <laughs> on Ohio. Okay. And, uh, hopefully, hopefully they don't take that personally. But anyways, um, you know, if everybody's doing something, then everybody's doing it. If, if only a few people are doing it, then, and you can figure that out, then you've just saved yourself money. Right. You know, so you, you really have to do your research. Uh, the more research you do, the more you, the more information you have when you walk into the dealership, the more pleasant that buying experience is going to be, I think, for anybody that's involved. Absolutely. And, and that's an interesting point, too, because um, it's not like I do this as a regular thing, but I've noticed, and not even just buying a motorcycle or a car, like I, I remember buying a new mattress once, and I had done my due diligence research. You know, how often do you buy a mattress? You know, you want what's, what's good, what's going to be comfortable. And I had read consumer right. reports and all these kind of things. And so I went into the mattress shop and, you know, salesman comes up, hey, can I help you? And so I start asking him questions. And it was so funny to look on his face. He's like, wow, you really did your homework, didn't you? Like, like this was a, a, an unusual thing for a consumer to, like, have an understanding of what they were purchasing. So yeah. the, the point I'm getting at is me personally now if if I'm dealing with a salesman who's put off by the fact that I know something about what I'm buying, then I, I don't deal with that salesperson because I'm just like, okay, the, the, this guy's just looking to pull something over, you know, over my eyes kind of thing. Um, and, and so that's, you know, again, buyer beware and kind of educate yourself a little bit. It can help a great deal. The other thing, too, and I've talked about on past episodes, and I don't know if you if, if they did this for you or if you even needed it, but the, the thing of a, a big difference in how well a motorcycle you know how happy you are with it and how it performs for you is how well it's set up for you and so a point i've made is while it's sometimes enticing to hard bargain right because no one wants to spend more money than they have to in in your case that wasn't really an option but you know if you're buying a bike that's been out a couple years or it's not the hot thing or whatever you know you can sometimes hard bargain and you can really you can really push the the dealer down on the price. Like, you know, when, when I was buying, negotiating on the Z900 RS, it kind of finally got to the point where the salesman was like, look, I'm sorry, I, I can't sell you the bike. Now, it could have been a bluff. Maybe he's a good poker player. But I was like, okay, at this point, I'm happy with the deal. So fine. Uh, you know, right. I, I like the guy. I'm going to take the deal. Um, but the point I'm getting to is 
you know, if you're pushing too hard to get the best price, you know, look, a dealership is a business and they've got to make money. So if you've really put the screws on them to give you the lowest price they can, they may not offer that much in the way of setting the bike up for you. You know what I'm saying? Where if, if they know they're making a good buck on it, you know, it's fair, fair buck on it. It's like, okay, well, let's get this thing set up. Let's make the handle, make sure the handlebars are adjusted properly and let's set, you know, set the controls properly. You know, like on, on the Vulcan S, they're actually Kawasaki. It's called the ErgoFit system, right? There's three different sets of controls, handlebars, different seats, and different pegs, you know, mounting positions, so the bike can kind of be custom fitted for different size sure. people. Now, some dealers either don't want to be bothered or they don't know about it. So there again, it's a matter of picking a good dealer. And I'm guessing some, it's like, you know, if, if they're giving you the bargain price, it's like, okay, you know, take the bike, good luck. <laughs> Whereas, right. you know, if you're paying list or something close or whatever, they'll probably be like, okay, well, we got this really cool thing and we're going to, you know, at, at, at our cost, we're going to fit this thing to you. So, yeah. Yeah. And that, um, you know, they do that with the Indian scout too. You can, you can get extended or, or reduced reach yeah. um, options for that. If you're tall, particularly tall or particularly short. Um, yeah, Gina, my, my girlfriend's got the Indian Scout 60, 2017. And so, I mean, it, it did cost her, but, you know, that she she went for the different seat. You know, in, in that case, whatever, they I, I don't know if it's just Indian's thing or the dealer, they, they weren't going to, like, include anything. But, you know, she went with the different handlebars and stuff. Um, what was nice in her case was at the time, and I don't know if they still do it on certain models, but Indian had zero interest loan, seven years, zero percent interest. So... Mm -hmm. That, like, right there was a huge value. So, uh, you know, it was kind of like, hey, you know, you're getting free money. <laughs> you know, what do you want, yeah. right? So, Well, uh, and they have a big incentive to do something like that because, you know, they, they needed to – they need to get as many bikes out there in the world as they possibly can sure. because every time you pull up in front of your favorite biker hangout, if you see Harley after Harley after Harley, then, you know, you're going to – start looking at Harleys when you want to buy a bike. But right. if you see Indians in there and Kawasaki's and all these other bikes, then you go, Oh, well I don't have to just, just go buy a Harley. Now you may end up buying a Harley anyway. Yeah. Cause uh, that's what you want, but cause that's what you want. But if you don't know what the options are, then you, you don't know if you could find a bike that's more suited for you. You right. know, right. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. The, do you have any other questions about the whole kind of new bike buying process? Because that was the thing that uh, that we kind of talked about talking about. Yeah, um, I mean, I think I we've mean, actually bought a hit. bike too. So I think yeah, so I've kind of been through it. I mean, I think that's good. Actually, all the things you've talked about, I think. I'm hoping I actually I think I'm going to like I'll title this episode something like, you know, buying a new bike kind of thing, because it, it's I think been really good in that regard. Um, I mean, I, you know, I have this like Gina bought her, right? She bought her bike new from Indian. So I kind of have an idea of what it's like dealing with them. One thing I was going to just let you know, I'm not saying it's a problem, whatever, but just to be aware of is she did have two oil leaks on her Indian Scout 60. I mean, both of which, you know, got handled you know, under, under warranty. The first was the cylinder head. It was, just, it was, it wasn't like a heavy leak, but it was weeping basically. Sure. Um, so they repaired that. And it, what the mechanic said was that the, the, uh, the, the gasket just was not installed properly. You know, he said, uh, I'm trying to think now that Indian uses, 
I want to say it's actually like a liquid type gasket or something. It's something. No, no, maybe that's not right. Maybe it's like whatever, whatever material. It's not metal, but it's something that if you're not careful about how it's applied, it it will fold or shift or something, right? And so you can get oil weeping out. So they they handled that. So that was awesome. But then in the process, when they put the motor back together, they didn't put the uh, I guess the transfer case housing on properly. So then that was weeping. So it went back a second time. Now, you know, in fairness to the dealer, you know, they, they did, they handled everything. The bike is fine now. You know, there's, there's no more oil leaking, weeping or whatever. And they did, they felt bad, you know, having two incidents or whatever. And so she's got like free maintenance for the next year or two years or something like that. So they really, you know, they, 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 they made, they made up for it kind of thing, which was really cool. Um, but one thing that the mechanic said, and he seems to have a lot of experience, and he actually, you know, he, he rides track. He's got a track bike and stuff like that. He's got a lot of experience working on motorcycles. What what he said, and again, this was just his opinion, and I'm not trying to talk bad about Indian, but his what he felt was that because Indian knows the dealers in general are very capable and they have good mechanics, and his, his what he was saying basically is the quality control on the assembly line may not be as good as it could be. So they, they kind of put things together and then it's like, well, if there's a problem, we know the dealers can handle it. Now, I don't know if true or not. That's was, was his kind of opinion, but it's just something, you know, keep an eye on your bike, obviously, you know, if you see, see anything going on, I mean, it's a different motor and whatever. So probably different, you know, different assembly line and, and whatever. But, and I haven't even heard that this is like an issue with the scout sixties, but you know, something that happened in her case. So. Yeah. Well, and you know, those, those, liquid or gel gaskets um, get used a lot in vehicle manufacturing because so much of it is done by robots. Okay. And, you know, a robot can't place a paper gasket as easily as it can put a bead of gasket material around the ceiling face. Makes sense. Uh, the ceiling surface. Yeah. So, you know, that, that uh, it may very well have been a, a gel or liquid type gasket, um, you know, that gets placed and and those can have air bubbles in them they can have fail points that fail yeah. uh, under pressure and stuff like that so um but yeah with a with a i'm lucky in that you know like i said i do have a place to store my motorcycle when i'm not riding it it does happen to have a concrete floor that's like a nice light gray concrete mm-hmm. so i can see if fluid is hitting the ground underneath the motorcycle yeah uh, which is so yeah, that's a great point also. Sorry. Good. That's okay. I always make sure that when I lubricate the chain, I don't do it in the shed because uh-huh. yep. that the, the overspray will get yes. on the floor and it will yes. mark the floor and then I can't see if there's an oil leak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. No, but that's a good point you mentioned because I'm, I'm fortunate that way too. Like we have a one-car garage that we put the bikes in and it's also concrete, light color floor. And anytime I pull the bike out, you know, I take a look what's, you know, any, any spots or anything that I don't know about. So yeah, just yeah. so you can keep an eye on things. is kind of a good way to check it out. Yeah. So yeah. do you, do you do your scamods or whatever they call it where you, you know, every time you ride, you go around and you check all the things or do you just get on the bike and turn oh, the, it? Yeah. Like the T clocks and what I know, like MSF T-clocks. it's T clocks, but there's, there's other ones. Um, no, I'm kind of, it's actually interesting because we've talked about this on throttled and whatever. Um, generally what I'll do, well, for sure what I do when I back the bike out, like I said, I look for leaks on the floor. You know, I kind of walk around the bike, see if anything's obviously going on. Uh, I don't always check the tire pressure, but, you know, 
I, I like to make sure I got the proper pressure in the tires. Yeah. If I'm going for a longer trip, like I'm going to be away, I make sure I check all the fluid levels and stuff. Um, but no, it's not like every time I ride, like I check and make sure the indicators are working and brake light and all that. And I, I'm not saying it's bad. I mean, cause, cause like you were saying before, motorcycling is dangerous, right? So anything we can do to make sure we're in good shape riding and the bike is in good shape is, I think it's time well spent. Sometimes I'm a little bit lazy and, and it's even to the point where, you know, sometimes mostly I ride the bike for just for fun. It's just leisure right. time. Right? I don't, I, I work in New York city and I commute by train and trying to like commute by motorcycle would just be a nightmare. It's just not even worth it. It would just not be enjoyable. Um, but my point is if there is an opportunity to run an errand and I could take the bike, if I'm feeling rushed where like, I'm just going to be driving faster than I should be, or you know, I should check something and I'm not going to. Then I don't take the bike. You know, I'll I'll take the car because I think it's just safer, more prudent thing to do. You know, yeah. and then if it's a leisure ride, I take the time, make sure things at least seem to be in order. You know. Yeah, one of the things that with that with that process, I've I've been a little more diligent about with the the Indian. Um, which has spilled over into when I ride my BMW is checking tire pressure. Cause you know, the, the very first ride I had less than 40 miles on the bike and I had a puncture in the rear tire. So literally now every time I ride the Indian, I check the tire pressure, mm-hmm. which the last time I pulled the BMW out of the, out of the shed to, to go ride it. Um, I was like, you know what? My tire gauge is right here. I might as well just check the air pressure, which, yeah. and before I, I could not remember the last time I checked the air pressure on my on my BMW unless it was on the lift for me to do something else. Okay. You know? Yeah. Yep. yep so, yep. so that's really kind of reawoken my awareness in checking tire pressure and maintaining that little thing, you know, and, and looking at the chain and lubricating it, having a chain driven bike again after a decade of drive shafts, mm-hmm. you know, has, has kind of reminded me that there's more to, your ride prep and your, your, cause you, you, you want to lubricate a chain while it's still hot, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Then you don't want to lubricate your chain at the end of the ride rather than the beginning of the ride. Um, unless you're cleaning it, which is a different process, but, um, you do it at the end of the ride because then that gives the lubrication a chance to kind of sink in and, and mm-hmm. while the chain is warm and all that stuff is going on mm-hmm. okay. so that when you start riding again, you have a much less fling. You know, because it had a chance to kind of what's going to drip is drip. What's going to evaporate has evaporated. And what's left behind is is lubrication. Um, You know, so I had to kind of relearn how to adjust the chain and learn how to do it on a new vehicle that, you know, had a had a uh, axle system that I wasn't familiar with. So that reminded me, oh, yeah, now I've got a chain driven bike with no center stand. You know, they used to, center stands used to be standard, and now yeah. they don't center stands on everything. They're options so, now, yeah. yeah. So I had to get bobbins and a track stand, uh, you know, so that I can lubricate the chain without having to push it through the driveway. You know, so there's all these little things that yeah. uh, that kind of build up, but um, yeah. but it's, it's an interesting point about the chain drive. It's one both of my bikes are chain, and while it's a bit of a hassle, admittedly, you know. It is, I try to do it every five, six hundred miles. I think I think the manual says four hundred. Um, yeah, but what I, what I do like about it is it does get me to get down next to the bike 
And I, I just have noticed, like, when I do a chain service, I'm likely to notice if something is amiss. Like, like even, like, on the Vulcan, I was, like, you know, working on the chain. I'm, like, wow, look at all the sand and crud that's collected, you know, like, on, on, like on top of the swing arm or where that pivot is. I'm, like, okay, this is not good. Like, let's – and I wouldn't have seen it otherwise. So I, yeah. I, I like it. it. It makes you get your hands on the bike and you kind of get a better sense of what's going on. So – and I'm not saying if you don't have – if you don't – have to have the hassle of a chain by all means, but check your bike over. <laughs> Pretend you have a chain and, and check the bike over, you know? Yeah. Um, and you know, I've, I've seen bikes that have come into the shop with, uh, you know, occasionally the boss would say, Hey, listen, I need to get to work on that bike, but I got to finish this first. Go take the rear wheel off that bike. And I go over there and four of the lug nuts are tight. And one of them's not, mm-hmm. you know, and you, you start off with one loose, lug nut or bolt lug bolt is going to be what it is on a, on a BMW and just the tiny little vibration that's caused by that one bolt being loose is going to start to loosen up the two bolts next to it. Mm-hmm. And if you don't check those things from periodically sooner or later, you have one tight bolt one and four loose ones. And then you have five loose bolts and, and you're skidding down the road and your wheels in the ditch. Yep. You know, that's an extreme example, but that's why you check these things on your bike. Sure. Absolutely. And that's a good point too, is like, I'm not saying you can't have catastrophic failures, but generally when something goes really bad, there's been a series of warning signs. You know, you know, it's like, well, I know my chain was squealing, but you know, whatever, I didn't have time to check it or, or what, you know, and then the chain snaps and it's like, oh, like all of a sudden out of nowhere, it's like, well, no, honestly, you know, the last thousand miles, (laughs) you know, you had some warning. So yeah, it's good to pay attention to that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that, that, uh, you know, one of the things that I always advocate even for adventure bike riders is to wash your bike once a year. Um, mm-hmm. not because it's, it's dirty, but because you gives you the opportunity to put your hands on every piece of your motorcycle and you can yeah. find something that's, you know, chipped or cracked or worn or frayed or whatever, just kind of by accident because you're going over the bike one piece at a time. Head to toe. Yeah. It's yeah. actually an interesting tip. I heard, uh, something that Isle of Man racers do. Is because because I was listening to an interview with a guy who was new. He's a rookie at the Isle of Men, and he said that one of the guys that was helping him out said, "Okay, so first of all, like like one of the top rules of thumb is when you bring the bike back into the pits, you've been out on your test laps or whatever, and you bring the bike back in to the pits, you defer you you don't first thing wipe all the bugs and stuff off the fairings." He said because if your bike is spraying oil or something like that you don't want to miss that. So you bring the bike into the pits, you take the fairings off and you check everything out. Then if there's no signs of oil leakage, any problem, okay, then, you know, go ahead, clean your fairings and stuff like that. So just interesting, interesting pointer. Yeah. Yeah. That's good advice. Absolutely. Yeah. And then uh, one thing I was just going to mention is because we were talking about tire pressure and stuff. I actually had for a while, I had bought these, they're called FOBO, F-O-B-O, they're tire pressure monitors, right? That you, right. you know, put, just replace the valve caps, uh, you know, on, on your tires. And then there's a little app that you run on your Apple or your Android phone. And it's actually really cool because it, you know, it shows you pressure. You can set an upper and lower limit. So you get an alert if something changes and it actually shows the, the temperature of the air in the tire, which was always kind of interesting to be riding and just monitoring, you know, for sure, like the back tire would always be hotter than the front tire and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. 
the reason I stopped using them on, on both bikes, that the reason I stopped on the Z900 RS is the manufacturer does recommend that if you're going to use these things, that you use metal valve stems. Um, and I've got, I haven't had them replaced with its rubber stems. And I guess because, you know, you've got, it's not super heavy, but it's a little bit of a clunky thing on top of the stem. And I did notice recently, it was after a couple thousand miles having them on, that it looked like the valve stem was starting to shift. And I'm like, nah, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't need a problem where the valve stem comes off <laughs> when I'm riding the bike or something like that. Because um, I think these are those rubber ones. Because uh, the the metal ones they recommend are actually you know there's nuts that are attached from inside the rim right so you got to take the tire yep. off and all that kind of thing, um, so that was and then the other thing was Gene and I got new Android phones and then for some reason the sensors don't talk to the phone anymore so I was like oh, you know what pull them off <laughs> I'm, I'm going back to simple plastic caps and I'll just I'll just check the pressure you know with my uh, my my air gauge. <laughs> But I have to say, they were really cool while I was using them. And if they start working again, maybe I'll go back to it. You know, when I need tires, maybe I'll just have the metal valve stems put on. But Yeah, and if you have a Garmin GPS that's relatively new, um, Garmin sells those valve caps that will awesome. transmit tire pressure data to your GPS unit. Mm -hmm. okay. You can, can check that right on there. Um, yeah, and those, uh, you know, a lot of people uh, skip this little piece of, of uh, motorcycle maintenance. I mean, we could, we could have a whole nother episode talking about all the different maintenance things you got to do. But, um, you know, when you, when you get new tires on your motorcycle, if you use rubber valve stems, you should get new rubber valve stems. Mm -hmm. Okay. Every yeah. time, every yeah. time I, I tell people that all the time, they're like, yeah, but they're fine. Yeah, they're fine now. But think you put 8,000 miles on those tires, you're going to put 8,000 miles on the next tires. And then you're going to forget to change that. And now you've got a third set of tires on one valve. Yeah. That yeah. thing, it's in the sun. It can crack. It can bend. It can, you know, just so just change them. It, yeah, it's a couple bucks, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. After after you spend two or three hundred dollars on tires, just spend a couple bucks on the valve stems. Make yeah, good point. Good point. Yep. So uh, I, I got a million of them. Anytime you want to have that conversation. <laughs> oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, I, I think we'll we'll probably have to do a follow up episode because uh, actually I, I think this is really good. Like everything we got into. I hope maybe we get a little bit more into the FTR twelve hundred. So maybe we'll do a, like we'll do another episode. We can talk more in detail about the bike. Yeah, but, anytime. Uh, yeah, that'd be awesome. But before we uh, before we wrap it up, any last advice you have for people? Like anything that we haven't talked about for new riders or people buying bikes or new bikes or anything? Well, you know, I, I honestly think that any any the smart thing if you're looking for your first bike is to go to the dealership that carries the bike that you're interested in and go sit on it and yeah. lift it off the side stand and feel how it is when it's not moving. And if you're intimidated at that point, that's not the right bike for you to start with, mm -hmm. you know, make that, make that your second bike, um, and get something that doesn't intimidate you at walking speed when you're literally walking next to it, because yeah. you know, you're going to be moving that bike around your garage, around your driveway, uh, out of your shed into the grass in your backyard, in my case, you know, so I got to have a bike that I feel comfortable. I, I wouldn't buy a gold wing because I'm not confident I could push a gold wing up the ramp into my shed. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I'm, I don't know that I think there are people that have the right mindset that could use an FTR 1200 as their first bike. I probably wouldn't recommend it 
to a lot of people because it is so powerful yeah. at even in rain mode where it cuts the, the horsepower and it cuts the response on the throttle. Um, it, it can be, I, I've been riding for a long, let me, let me put it this way. I've been riding for a long time and I've ridden a lot of different motorcycles. I've ridden a lot of miles. I've probably got, you know, well over a hundred thousand miles under my belt at this point, probably close to 200,000 miles. Wow. And the FTR has more power than I have skill. Mm -hmm. And I know that every time I get on it and when I ride it, I have that mindset. It would be very easy to get that bike out of control. And that's, I'm really grateful it has traction control built in and wheelie mitigation. I've lifted that front wheel a couple of times, just a little bit and felt the wheelie mitigation kick in and drop Mm -hmm. that tire back down. Um, you know, and, and I don't, I'm not a wheelie guy. I don't do wheelies on purpose. Right. You know? So having that technology there, I think is, is really important for the, to help you help yourself remember where your skill and performance characteristics of the motorcycle, where those two things cross. Right. Because you, you never, from my perspective, you never want to be at 98% of your skill because then you don't have any skill left over for a problem. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the FTR makes it really easy to ride at 90 or 95% of your skill level, at least for me. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, you know, maybe not the best first bike for somebody, but if you have the right attitude, you know, I think it could be a, 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 a I don't want to say a great first bike, you know, it's, but an acceptable, like first bike, an acceptable first bike. You you definitely have to have the right attitude to to make that your first bike. Right. Be willing to control the impulses and and whatnot. Exactly. Exactly. But that's an interesting point too, that you make about, because it it is cool. All of those features, electronic features and stuff, whether it's traction control, the anti-wheelie mitigation, all that kind of stuff, right? Which basically comes from the high-level racing that's made its mm-hmm. way down to consumer tech, you know, consumer bikes, right? The MotoGP and all that kind of stuff. Um, but that the point at which that stuff kicks in, whether it's ABS or whatever, is probably where you're pushing it too much. And it's why, like this guy Fast Eddie that I've had on the show, he does this Moto Jitsu like parking lot drills and practice and stuff. And one of the points he makes is, okay, if you've got the technology on the bike, awesome, like that's great to have, but don't rely on it. And like, because yeah. he says he he sees people, you know, they go out and rip on their bike, no, like kind of knowing that this stuff is protecting them, and and they're just like. They're pushed, like to your point, they're pushing the bike beyond their ability to control it. And the bike is saying, whoa, 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 let's take it easy. And he's like, what are you going to do if that fails? You know, if, if you're overcooking the corner and you're what a cornering ABS stops working, what are you going to do? Like, are you going to have the skill to, to get out of the, you know, get out of trouble? So, yeah, it's yeah. a thing, that, thing that's to be aware of. One of the first things I did when I went out, I mean, I went to, rode out to dinner with friends for the very first ride, but, yeah. um, uh, I think the second or third weekend that I had the bike, I took it out to a local high school that doesn't have anything going on on Saturday. And I practiced hard stops so that I could number one, so I could feel what it's like when the ABS kicks in yeah. and you want to know what that feels like. So you're not surprised the first time it happens. Yeah. Uh, but then I also turned the ABS off and 
practiced hard stops without the ABS to see, you know, how much, what's going to happen when I lock up the rear wheel. Um, I, I didn't try to lock up the front wheel. I'm not that brave, yeah. you know? Um, but you know, when I'm out riding around on the street, I'm not turning the ABS off and on the FTR ABS and traction control are on or off together. Okay. You either have everything on or everything off. Oh, yeah. Um, which I think is interesting. I'm not sure how I feel about it, but you know, neither here nor there. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was to, to practice. And plus my BMW has the, the telelever in the front, which is on a standard kind of shock rather than fork spring. Right. Yep. Yep. Um, so I needed to get out there and feel what it's like to do a hard stop with on traditional forks. forks. Yeah. Um, so, and that's, that's a great way, especially if you're a new rider to get out and really understand how your new motorcycle works or new to you motorcycle is to get in a, in a somewhat controlled environment, you know, an empty parking lot or a, right. a, a big paved place where there's not a, not any traffic and not a bunch of parked cars. Um, and really kind of push yourself to find where the, where your limits on that bike are. Yeah. Uh, and you know. So, uh, I, I definitely, and try to remind myself every couple of months to go and practice those hard stops and, you know, see, to check my lines and distances and things like that. Cause it's also a good opportunity to figure out if your tires are getting worn, you know, mm -hmm. if your if your rear wheel is locking up all the time, it's either your right foot or right. it's your, your rear tire. Mm -hmm. you yeah, know? yeah. So, yeah, yeah. That's, that's interesting I'm today. <laughs> no no yeah no that's no that's that's good yeah definitely i was uh reading in uh twist of the wrist keith code's book today about uh he talks about practicing and this is geared towards racers primarily but you know, right from, from lines of what you're saying is he's like practice locking up the rear wheel and practice locking up the front wheel because you want to know what it feels like and learn that you can control it and how that feels you know when you can when you control so for sure for new riders be careful obviously i mean you know you don't want to go out in the parking lot and lock up your front tire or something and crash your bike i'm not asking people to do that but but the idea of as as you build skill and experience like learning you know what what are your limits what's the bike's limits and to to your point different bikes are different so you get a you have another motorcycle or you buy another motorcycle you know you got to kind of go through the whole thing again, you know, and, and that, that's one of the things I like, like with Fast Eddie, like this belt system, one of the belts is you basically have to demonstrate you can do the different drills on different bikes. So you have to go from one bike to another to another to show that it's not just, okay, you've mastered one bike, but you can do it on different bikes. So I think that's a good, good way to handle it. Yeah. And that's a, that's a good reason to start on a, on a bike with a, I don't want to say a smaller bike, but a, a bike that's a little more geared towards a beginner, something like, uh, you know, like a 500 CC bike or oh. something like that. Because, you know, the, if you get out on an FTR 1200, it's got a 1203 CC liquid cooled, high performance, high compression engine. That bike is, that engine is meant to go fast and ride hard and do you know, really kind of impressive things. But if you're on a, a, a street 500, a Harley street 500 or a, 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 a Nighthawk that Honda used to make Nighthawk 750, CC 750s, right? Those bikes are not necessarily meant to have that level of performance. So, you know, you, you, you don't get into trouble as fast as you can on totally. a 1200 
ATV twin, you know? Totally, totally. I mean, that, that's why I went with the Vulcan S. You know, I wanted a bike like that, where if I slipped or did something dumb and like twisted the throttle too much for whatever reason that it wasn't going to take off on me and throw me off the bike a wheelie or something. Um, but what's interesting is now riding the Z 900 RS and getting used to that. If I get on the Vulcan S it's a lot more fun because I, I can, I can push it more. Like I know how to use that bike better. And I think that bike probably still is beyond my capabilities as a rider. You know, I'm pretty sure a really good rider could ride that bike a lot harder and better than I can. But, but, but again, that I, so I guess my point is, yeah, if you get a 500, 600, 650, something like that, don't get a Kawasaki ZX6R as a first bike. Cause I'm telling you that things a beast, but <laughs> you know, a bike like that, where it, it, you can grow into it. Like it can be a lot of fun to ride, but Absolutely. it's very manageable for a new rider, you know? Yeah. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So awesome. Yeah. Cool. If somebody, so, if, some, if one of my friends said, Hey, I want to get an Indian for my first bike, I would definitely point him to this, towards the scout platform. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if they're a, a really raw rider, I might point him at a scout 60. Yeah. To, tell, to be perfectly honest. Cause I think those are great, great first bikes. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Cool. All right, Wes. So, uh, if people want to reach out to you, what's the, what's the best way to reach you? Um, you, the best way to, to get me is actually through the website for my podcast. It's chasing the horizon.us. Uh, okay. and there's a contact form on there. And my email address is all over that site on all the show pages. Okay. Um, so it's easier to get to me that way. Um, that's, that's probably the best way. All right. Awesome. So I'll put that, I'll put that in the show notes and you know, it's the YouTube channel and stuff like that. So people can easily find all the cool content you got out there. Yeah. Subscribe, like comment, all Mm -hmm. those things, all that good stuff. Absolutely. All right, Wes, thanks a lot. It's been fun hanging out. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to talking to you again, man. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll do it. We'll do it again. I want to learn more about this uh, FTR 1200S and maybe one of these days we'll figure out hooking up and riding together. (laughs) There you go. Yeah, it'll probably be through the Cafe Racer team, you know, because, yes, yeah. uh, you know, it, it's weird ha- having made good friendships through there. Yeah. You know, Scott Scott introduced me to that group. I've known Scott since we were kids. Um, so it, it was really exciting to, to meet a lot of new people through that. That's a that's a good group of people. And it's interesting because that's how I met Steve Case was through yeah. through through that podcast and then he actually came down a couple of weekends ago we both went to the loud pipes meetup down in gettysburg yeah, virginia yeah. so that was cool and then we rode down to meet up with alex from uh from uh, maryland moto so you know he, he took us through the twisties in northern maryland which was awesome that that ride was was really cool so thanks There's again to fun. alex if he's listening yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. beautiful stuff so well, virginia well, but you know <laughs> virginia too i mean i i worked down in roanoke for about six months so i was uh <clears throat> on the Blue Ridge Parkway whenever I got a chance. It's just a beautiful area down there. Yeah, going 35 uh, miles an hour. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was in a Jeep. I wasn't riding motorcycles back then. But, so yeah, there I'm, you go. I'm, I'm itching to get down there on a motorcycle one of these days. So, Well, come on down, man. Yeah, be awesome. All right, Wes, thanks again. Yeah, and, no problem. Talk to you soon. All right, have yourself a good night. I will. Thank you again to Wes Fleming for joining me on the show. As I mentioned at the beginning, if you'd like to hear more about the Indian FTR 1200S, let me know, and I'll arrange to have Wes on the podcast again so we can delve into the nitty-gritty bits and pieces of that motorcycle. I know I would love to do it myself, so yeah, if you definitely want to hear about it, let me know, and uh, we'll definitely get that set up.
As always, thank you to everyone who's written in. If I haven't mentioned you on the show yet, I will in a future episode. But I do answer everyone's emails and messages personally as soon as I can, usually the same day. If you haven't already, please drop me an email or fill out the contact form on my website or message me in Facebook or Instagram and let me know that you're out there and anything you want me to know about the show. You can email me at soyouwantaride at yahoo.com or use the link in the podcast notes to my website, soyouwantaridemotorcycle.com, where you'll find all my contact details. Also, remember, I still have stickers available, so if you want to help me promote the podcast, just email me your mailing address. I will send some out to you. So it's, it's kind of cool just seeing people displaying the sticker. Uh, I, I keep getting stickers from other podcasts and you know social media sources and YouTube channels and things, and I actually haven't done it yet. But my plan is, now that I've got that fairing on the Z900 RS, it's got like a bit of a windshield, You know, which the way it's set up, I just look over the windshield. I don't look through it. So I think I'm going to start stickering kind of the, the outside edge of the windshield. I think it'll look pretty cool. I've got tons and tons of stickers now. I've got, you know, from Jed's Moto and Maryland Moto and motorcycle, you know, uh, Motorcycles and Misfits and Creative Riding Podcasts. And, of course, my podcast and Loud Pipes and all these different things. So I thought it'd be kind of cool to sticker up the windshield on the bike a little bit and maybe even kind of give it that slight race bike look with, with racing decals and stuff. If you'd like to help support the podcast, you can make a donation using PayPal by going to paypal.me slash Christopher Geis or click the donate link at the upper right side on my website. Please like and leave me comments and a rating on your favorite podcast service. That'll help other people find my podcast. Please like and follow me on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for So You Want to Ride or you can find the links on my website. And please keep spreading the word and help me build my online and listener communities. Thank you again for listening, and just remember, whatever you do, it's always time to ride. (laughs) 